0: When the Lord saves a person after they have put their trust in Jesus for salvation, when He saves a person and He carries away their sins, when He saves a person and the Holy Spirit comes to live inside, He is seeking to change that person from the inside out. They are not only new in His sight, but He is making them new and changing who they are from someone who barely knows God to someone who knows God and God is changing them into His likeness. And as He does that work, He is relentless. That is more important to him right now than anything else that's happening in your life. He wants you to know him, and he wants to change you into what you were made for, which is to be in his image and to make him known to a world that they can't see him unless without seeing us and who we are and what God has done in our lives. That's when they begin to see the Lord. And so he is absolutely relentless in pursuing change in us not just so we would be good people but so that we would become like him and that we discover is where our our purpose is and so so many times we are at cross purposes with god aren't we we come to him in our prayer life and there are things that we want him to do things that we need things that we we say well i ought to pray about things that i need and you should And so we we pray about the things we need, and we just look to God to sort of fill in the gaps in our life. And, and, And that can be your purpose, but His purpose is far grander than that. He has a plan for your life. He has things for you to do and a person for you to become. And so as we talk today about the school of persecution, I want you to understand it's just one of multiple schools that God takes you and I through. That the school of persecution is just one way that God accomplishes the transformation that He wants to accomplish inside your life and inside my life. For at least 20 years, I have been aware that annually there is a coalition of organizations devoted to the persecuted church in the world. There's a coalition that comes together every year, and they encourage churches to observe at least for one Sunday, a Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. They call it IDOP, International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. And, and some of those organizations are really good at mobilizing prayer requests and, and, and helping us know how to pray and giving us information about what is going on with that part of the church that is experiencing the worst forms of persecution. One of those groups is called Open Doors, another one's called Voice of the Martyrs, but there's a short clip I want you to see from Open Doors that talks about persecution in the world. Watch this.
1: For the last 20 years, Open Doors has been producing the World Watch List, which ranks the top 50 countries where it's most difficult to be a Christian. The list is compiled by a group of experts, audited by an outside organization specializing in religious freedom, and is the best and most authoritative list of its kind. Through on-the-ground interviews and data analysis, it provides an accurate picture of the difficulties persecuted Christians face around the world. For each country, the list looks at a variety of factors persecuted Christians endure in their public and private lives such as persecution from the government, the community, and even their own families. Open Doors estimates that in the top 50 countries alone, over 215 million believers face intimidation, prison, even death. That is one in 12 Christians worldwide. But the list is not just numbers and figures. It represents those who have decided to follow Jesus, no matter the cost. We believe there is only one body of Christ, and when one part suffers, every part suffers. We hope you feel called to learn more and pray for the millions of believers around the world where persecution is a daily reality.
0: And so open doors with with groups like Voice of the Martyrs and and if you're interested in learning more, you can go out on the internet and, and look at opendoorsusa.org or voiceofthemartyrs, V-O-M, or persecution.org. And you can learn all that you want to learn about what, what is happening in the world. These groups, Mobilize Prayer, we're going to do some of that tonight. So if you come back tonight at 6 o'clock, we're going to actually spend some time praying for the persecuted church. And um, other groups just focus on distributing Bibles uh, it's hard for you and I to appreciate how precious the Word of God is to people who can't get their hands on one, who can't get their hands on a Bible, and Open Doors does that. Um, and so others are dedicated to just getting the Word out when someone's being unfairly a- arrested and tried, like the the woman in Pakistan that was released this week, in part because of the international outcry about the unfairness of, of her situation. Christians in Pakistan suffer all the time. They are relegated to the lowest levels of society. They are the street sweepers, the garbage collectors, the ones who clean out the, the sewage um, holes. They, they, they And because of that outcry, this dear woman was set free. But people who were involved in the legal process, literally, their lives have been threatened. Her attorneys had to leave the country. And so that kind of intensity is something you and I aren't familiar with. And so pastor, why do we need to be concerned about persecution? Because persecution takes many forms. And this morning, as we'll see from God's word, you need to know about persecution because persecution is one of God's primary schools that he is taking you and I through. One way or another, at one time or another in your life, you're going to experience some form of persecution if you're a Christian. And so so we need to ask ourselves, what is it when I experience persecution, what is it that God wants to accomplish in me what is it that he's teaching me what is it that he's showing me when i pass through that kind of experience and so i want to just call attention to three things this morning number one during persecution god is teaching me to experience joy during my worst experiences you say seriously Mm mm-hmm Over and over in God's Word, we're taught that that joy is something that's not only possible, it's actually something that is associated with Christians when they're being persecuted. For example, in Acts chapter 5, verse 40, we read, and when they had called in the apostles, it says they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. They beat them and said, don't preach anymore in the name of Jesus. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name rejoicing now i know a lot of the ways i might respond but rejoicing is not what first comes to mind i might gripe complain and whine a little bit but they rejoiced and this is not abnormal in the scripture paul taught later in philippians chapter 4 verse 4 rejoice in the lord always again i will say rejoice rejoice How often should we be rejoicing? How many circumstances should we be rejoicing in? He says, always. Always. You say, Pastor, how is it possible to rejoice in every circumstance of life? Is that me? A little persecution there. How is it possible? It's possible when you and I make an adjustment in the way we think about joy. Typically, we associate happiness and being blessed and joy with our circumstances. We link the two together. When my circumstances are good, I'm blessed. When my circumstances are good, I'm happy. When my circumstances are good, I can rejoice. The problem with that is our circumstances go up and they what? They also go down, don't they? And so if I tie my joy to my circumstances, I've got a real problem. Jesus taught his disciples not to associate their joy with their circumstances. In, on Thursday morning in our, in our men's Bible study, one of the passages that we studied recently was how Jesus sent out, at one point in his ministry, sent out 70, at least 70 believers in pairs to do the things that he had been doing, that he had taught them to do. Cast out demons, heal the sick, preach the gospel. And when they came back, they were so excited because they had been able to cast out demons. They were pumped about that. We have cast out demons. And the Lord came, spoke to them about that, and and he, he did seek to encourage them. But then he came back and he said to them very carefully, very clearly, though, he said, Listen, don't rejoice because the demons are subject to you in my name. Don't rejoice because of that. Rejoice because your names are written in heaven. In other words, don't associate your happiness and your joy with the fact that you experience victory in a certain moment of your life. You need to associate joy with the fact that you have a relationship with your Father and He loves you and you're going to spend eternity with Him no matter what your earthly circumstances. And so so the Scripture is very clear about this. If we were going to experience a kind of joy that is not tied to our circumstances, it's got to be tied to something else. And it's got to be tied to our relationship to the Lord. Now, this kind of joy is supernatural. It's not something I can just work up in my own strength. It's something that comes from the inside, not from anything on the outside. It comes from the inside. And the Lord Jesus, when he taught about it in John 15, verse 11, he said, these things have I spoken to you. Now, the things he's referring to there, these things... Or the things that we taught and talked about last fall. We talked about abiding in Christ. If you were here last year, we took several weeks to study John 15 as Jesus taught you and I to commune with him all the time. To live our life always in his presence. Where so much so that he becomes our environment, both on the outside and on the inside. In Christ. In Christ. And so Jesus said, these things I've spoken to you about abiding that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. Two, Two joys, okay? One of them is the joy of Jesus, who had the ultimate relationship with the Father. And the other is my joy. And he says, I've taught you how to abide and commune with me so that my joy would be inside of you. So the kind of joy that can rejoice always, that can rejoice in any kind of circumstance, is a supernatural joy, and it flows from a reservoir of the joy of Jesus Christ inside of you. You don't work it up. You don't say, well, I guess I ought to be joyful, hallelujah. You, know? you don't do that. No, it's a relationship with Jesus, and out of that reservoir, your joy is made full. So persecution is a school For learning to experience joy that is not linked to your circumstances. Now with that in mind, I want to call your attention to Luke chapter 6 verse 22. And I want you to listen. This is Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount. Listen to what he says. Luke 6 verse 22. Blessed are you or happy are you, all right, when men hate you. Now that's a great circumstance, isn't it? And when they exclude you and revile you and cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake, because of the love of Jesus, because you love Jesus, they do these things. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for indeed your reward is great in heaven, for in the like manner their fathers did to the prophets. And so in this passage of of Scripture... Jesus is describing, for you and me, three circumstances at least. Some say four, I'm going to say three. Where it's possible to have a supernatural kind of joy that's not linked to your circumstances. But listen to the three experiences. Listen to the three moments that happen where you can experience joy. In other words, when these happen to you, expect that God has has a school That he's taking you through in that moment. God, what are you doing? What are you trying to teach me? What are you trying to show me? Expect that when these three things happening, you know exactly what he's trying to do. Are you ready? Here's the first one. The experience of being unloved or hated. Have you ever been unloved or hated? You say, Pastor, that's happening to me right now. I'm having that experience. Can I tell you what the Lord wants to accomplish in your life? Joy that's not tied to your circumstances. The experience of being unloved or hated. He said, when men hate you. When men hate you. And, of course, the word hate means the absence of love, to dislike someone strongly with the implication of aversion or hostility. You, you see that person coming. If you hate them, you don't have any love for them. You want to stay away from them. You don't want anything to do with them. You just as soon see them disappear. Second experience, the experience of being excluded. When they exclude you. When they exclude you. Um, this is to to take someone who's in a relationship with you and to exclude them. There was a relationship. To be excluded means you were in it, you were in the group, you were part of the group, you were in this relationship with someone and you've been excluded from it. That's what the Word says. Uh, I think we use the word ghosted now. Anybody know what ghosted is? This is being ghosted. Because you were part of the group and suddenly they don't call you anymore. They don't talk to you anymore. They They don't... touch base with you anymore. They just sort of separate from you. The experience of being trashed. Now that's not in the Bible, but when it says, and they revile you and cast out your name as evil, you've been trashed, believe me. This is to insult someone, to speak disparagingly of someone, to assassinate their character. And and when this is happening to you, when these three things are happening, where you're unloved or hated, where you're excluded, where you're trashed, how do we respond to that? He says, rejoice! Rejoice! Oh, goody, I'm getting trashed. That's not what he means. He's saying in that moment, because of your love for Jesus, if these things are happening to you, rejoice in that day and leap for joy. That word leap for joy is the same word when when Mary was pregnant with Jesus and she came and met her cousin who was pregnant with John the Baptist and, and Mary spoke to her, the baby inside Elizabeth leaped. So next time someone hates your guts, What are you going to do? There is a way. God has a way for you. But in that moment that normally is just extremely hurtful, you can turn to the Lord and find something absolutely remarkable. A joy that's not tied to whether people like you or not. During persecution, God's teaching me to experience joy during my worst circumstances. He's also teaching me something else. Number two, to love the ones who hurt me, to love the ones who hurt me the way He loves me. In Luke chapter 6, verse 27, and it goes all the way to verse 36, I'm not going to read all of it, but Jesus says, goes on to say in Luke 6, the Sermon on the Mount, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who spitefully use you. Then he says in verse 35, but love your enemies, and he wraps it up by saying, and if you do this, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the unthankful and evil. That's what He does. Therefore, be merciful just as your Father also is merciful. Do you get the idea that He wants us to be like Him? He loves the unlovely. He loves the hateful. He loves those who curse Him. He loves those who are running from Him as hard as they can. He loves those that have excluded Him from His life. That the things that God loves, He wants us to love. The the things that that he is pursuing, he wants us to pursue. And and so to love the ones who hurt me is part of what he wants to accomplish when all of those tough situations come. And it's it's remarkable. He's going to allow, if I understand Scripture correctly, and as I see what happens in the rest of the New Testament, he actually allows some of these circumstances to take place so that I will learn to love those who hurt me. And so if you're in the middle of, of a circumstance like that right now, be assured that one of his lessons in this school of persecution is that you love those who hurt you. Now, once again, you can't do that in your own strength. You can't do that in the flesh. Later in John, John 6, Jesus would say, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. Nothing. We talked about that last week. I need a thirst for God that brings me to a place where I drink deeply of Jesus, relying on Him by faith, being filled with His Spirit, and then walking in His Spirit. I need the Holy Spirit at work in my heart and life. I can't love the way God loves. I can't, but He can. And so it's not a natural love. It's a supernatural love, and as we go through the scripture, one of the things that we discover is that persecution comes from at least one of five distinct groups in the Bible. When persecution comes, and I really haven't found an exception yet, when persecution comes, it comes from one of these five areas. Are you ready? Five groups of people in the school of persecution that you will encounter while learning to love supernaturally. In other words, persecution comes from these people, and Jesus is saying, bless them. Persecution comes from these people. He says, love them. Persecution and abuse comes from these people. He says, treat them well, okay? And here are those five groups. By the way, Manly Beasley Sr. used to call these people heavenly sandpaper. Does that ring a bell? Heavenly sandpaper. What do you do with sandpaper? You take off all the rough edges. And God uses heavenly sandpaper in our life. Did someone come to mind when I said that? Five groups of people. Here are the five groups and sources of persecution in Scripture. But these are the people we're to love. Number one, the religious group. The religious group. I'm starting there because the very first Christian martyr was killed by religionists in the Bible. Stephen was stoned in Acts chapter seven by religious people. People who said they loved God. People who knew the Bible killed the man and as he was dying in Acts 7 verse 60 the bible says he spoke to the lord lord do not charge them with this sin do you think he loved religious people who were hurting him you bet he did do you think he did that naturally or because something supernatural had happened in his life well it's because the holy spirit was at work in him and so you have these five groups of people. The first one is the religious group. Second is the control group. By the way, religious group, if you haven't been a Baptist very long, don't be shocked. Religious people can be the meanest snakes in the grass. They can. I'm, oh, no. You, oh, yes. And, and, and we've got to be on our guard because sometimes we think, well, we're all Christians. It doesn't matter how I act. No, that's not true, friend. If you're in Christ... The Holy Spirit lives in you, and His desires that you exhibit love, joy, and peace, and long-suffering, kindness, and goodness, and faithfulness, and gentleness, and self-control. And you say, well, that's not just the way I am. Well, that's not the way Jesus is either, and if He's not in you, you're not saved. So there's a religious group that can be the source, but we're called to love them. We're called to love them. Secondly, the control group. By the way, the Father sent Jesus to a bunch of religious people. Number two, the control group. Uh, The control group. I I wrestled with some of these labels. I could have said the political group or the people in power, the government or rulers or whatever. But but these are the people in charge and they like being in charge and they like having control and they like calling the shots. And the control group, in this particular case, in Acts chapter 12, Herod, King Herod Agrippa, was in power. He was in control. And, And he fed on that as a person. He loved getting the glory for his actions. And I can't tell the whole story, but, but he arrested James, the brother of John, and he put him to the sword and killed him, cut his head off, beheaded him. And he got so much praise for that, that he arrested Peter. If you keep reading the story, and Peter ultimately was set free. But, but it says, then he, Herod, killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. He's part of the control group. Are we to love those people? Are we to love the people in authority? Are we to pray for them? Paul actually taught us to pray for people in authority, to pray for the government. In Romans 13, he said, obey those who who are in charge. And, And so through our trust in God, we trust God to straighten out whatever's not right. We recognize that that very power system, that structure of power and control can hurt us, but our response to it is to bless, not curse, to love, not hate. Third group, the money group. The money group. In Acts 19, you have a story of Demetrius the silversmith in Ephesus. And Paul was coming and preaching, and so many people were coming to Christ that the, the, the little silver idols that they were making were not selling as well. It was hurting their profits. And so Demetrius stirred up a bunch of people and it caused a riot. And, um, and so he said in Acts 19, verse 27, he said, This trade of ours is in danger. It was about money. And so, are we called to love people who are all about money? And that's all they care about, business, making money, more money. It's a source of persecution. It's also someone we're supposed to love. The irrational group. Again, I could have used a lot of different words. In fact, I did. I changed this one about five times. And then Acts 17 is a situation where a mob gathered in a town where Paul was preaching and, and this, there was an, a mob action. It says, In gathering a mob set all the people of the city in an uproar. The Jewish, again, religious leaders, were envious of the attention and the response of, that Paul was getting and so they stirred up a mob to attack Paul, to attack the other leaders. And... Um, And you don't have to look very far and research and study to know that the intelligence of people goes down when they're in large groups. never underestimate the, the power of large groups to do stupid things. And the irrational part of it was that they were afraid. They were fearful. They were anxious. And because of that anxiety and because of that fear, they didn't understand this man who was preaching about faith and trusting. And so there was a reaction, a source of persecution, yes, but a group that were called to love. And then number five, another group, the family group. We don't think of this very often, but this is a source of persecution in the Bible. In Matthew 10, verse 36, Jesus said, "...and a man's enemies will be those of his own household." And just before that, he had said, I've come to set a man against his father, a daughter against his mother, her mother, that there's a divisiveness to the gospel that goes all the way into the home. And that persecution can come from a brother, a sister, a parent, literally a member of your family. A source of persecution? Yes. But someone we're also called to love. And I can't do that in my own strength. So during persecution, God's teaching me to experience a joy that is not tied to my circumstances. He's teaching me to love even those who hurt me, to love the way He loves me, to love others in that same way. And then number three, during persecution, God is teaching me to seek Him knowing that evil is seeking me. You know, one of the great temptations in the New Testament because because persecution got so intense at different times was to sort of back away from devotion to Christ. To know that if I take a stand, somebody's going to say something about me, going to do something to me, they're going to hurt me, they're going to hurt my family, hurt my business if I take a stand for Christ. And and so there was always that temptation. The book of Hebrews is written, written to individuals who were thinking about shrinking back, stepping back because of the persecution and the pressure that they were facing. When Jesus talked about what the disciples were going to experience when they preached the gospel, he said, The kingdom of God is like a man who went forth to sow, and he, he sows seed. And unlike farmers today, you know, who break up the ground, they, I guess you put the seed in, they cover it up, right? They they spread the seed on the ground and then they tilled it under the dirt after they spread the seed. And it's still done that way today in some countries. And so they would just broadcast the seed, just just cast it out all over the place. He said, you know, when we preach the gospel, it's that way. We don't pay attention to where it's going. We just broadcast the gospel, give it to whoever, whenever, however we can. We just broadcast the gospel. And he said, some of that, that seed falls on the soil on the path between the fields and it's hard and it's beat down and that seed which represents the word of God can't get into the heart and he said what happens is that the enemy comes like a bird of the air snatching the seed off the ground the enemy comes and plunders the truth out of a person's heart and it speaks to the battle that's taking place when you're trying to share Jesus with somebody. The, the enemy is coming, and he's plundering the heart, trying to take that truth out. And, and then he talks about stony soil, where, where the seed gets in there, but there, there, there are stones and rocks that are crowding it out. And he says it begins to grow at first, and, and, and they may even be a little excited and receive with joy the Word of God. They may come down the aisle, get baptized, they may go through all the motions. But then it says when persecution or trouble erupts because of the Word they stumble, they quit, it's too hard, and they just stop. And then then he talks about the seed that goes onto the soil and and thorns grow up. The the little seed sprouts and it begins to grow, but there's a competing crop, and it says that the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches are like those thorns that grow up and they choke the life out of that out of the word they just choked the word off and it's the enemy that that is attributed to in the text that the enemy is coming along and doing those things and so as you and I are growing in Christ as we're seeking to spend time with God and learn the scripture and and go to Bible studies and come here and do those kinds of things, and we're trying to grow in the Lord. As we're trying to do that, we need to understand that the more I seek the Lord, the more the enemy is seeking me. That you and I are in a bloody battle, and the consequences are eternal. And, 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 and it may be very pleasant to go to the church in the United States and win Arkansas. It may seem on the surface to be very pleasant, but there's a bloody war associated with church attendance anywhere, anywhere on the planet. And persecution takes many forms. And all of us will be exposed to it if we're seeking to grow in Christ. All of us. You say, well, pastor, where does it say that? Well, I'm glad you asked. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 10, the apostle Paul is writing to Timothy. Listen to what he says. But you have carefully followed my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance, persecutions afflictions which happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, what persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord delivered me. And then he says in verse 12, a verse I want you to hear, 2 Timothy 3.12. Yes, and some who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. No, it doesn't say some, does it? It says all. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And, and we've talked about forms of persecution that involve death and, and, uh, and severe forms in, in third world countries. We, we've talked about that. But listen, this word persecution here means pursued. It means pursued. It means chased. The enemy is after you if you're a Christian. And if you're not trying to grow, no problem. You're going to have a great... <laughs> life perhaps Uh, he's not concerned with you if you're not serious but if you're trying to grow in the Lord if you want to know him not about him but if you want to know him if you want to walk with him if you want to walk in the fullness of his spirit and be obedient to him responsive to him worship to him while you seek God he's seeking you and that's why he says all who seek all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted it's inevitable takes different forms But the enemy is coming after you. He's coming. All who seek to live godly. That word godly, we've talked about it before. But in its most basic meaning, it means to shrink back, to do it well. And and it's the idea of of respect for God. And that's why it's translated godly. but, But it's not... It doesn't mean to be like God. It means to love and worship and respect God. And everyone who seeks to love and worship and respect God with their life, that's the person that can expect persecution to take place. And, and so why all? Why all? I shared this earlier in the week on, uh, on social media, but, but each year, there's a new set of statistics that are released by a school on the East Coast that studies the growth of religions around the world, and it studies the growth of Christianity. And if you isolate those Christians who preach the gospel, who believe the Bible to be the Word of God, if you isolate that, you can see how fast the church is growing in the world. And right now, dear ones, the church is growing at a rate of 82,500 people a day around the world. That means in the hour that we will have spent together in this service, in this past hour, about 3,400 people have come to faith in Jesus Christ around the world. On the day of Pentecost, it was 3,000. So you and I are living truly at one of the greatest times to be alive in the history of the Christian church. More people are coming to faith in Jesus every hour of every day than came to faith on the day of Pentecost in the book of Acts. A Pentecost every hour. Isn't that cool? But listen, 93% of those people coming to faith in Jesus, 93% of all the people being saved in the world, 93% of that 82,500 thousand five are being saved today, 93% are outside of North America and Europe. In other words, we're not seeing the church explode. We're not seeing the church grow rapidly. We're, in fact, we're seeing the church in decline in North America. But around the world, you see the church exploding, and you see it exploding in cultures and places where if you're a Christian, they're going to kill you. Is persecution holding the church back, or is persecution God's school that causes people to learn to love, to learn to experience joy, to seek Him? And through that persecution, the church is exploding, not decreasing. So much of the time we read about the trouble the church had in the book of Acts, but if you read closely, every time they hit a wall, it was God's way of propelling the church forward again. It never stopped them and never slowed them down. God had a way for them through every barrier, every difficulty, every persecution they encountered. God had a way, and they went forward, and the church did explode. 3,000, 5,000, and then they quit counting. From 1957 to 1980, there was a man who spent that chunk of his life, 23 years, in prison in China. His name was Wang Mingdao. He went to prison. He was 57 years old. I'm 57. And he spent the next 23 years of his life in, in prison, not speaking to anybody. They didn't give him a Bible. They didn't give him anything to read. They, he didn't have any paper. He didn't have a pen to write with. They gave him food through a door. He didn't get to talk to anybody for 23 years. Before he went into prison, he was one of the fathers of the, the underground house church movement in China. Our Southern Baptist missionaries that heard him speak Went into little little places. When the communists took power, they went into little places and people would be sitting on little benches, just that wide. They would sit on those little benches for two hours listening to that man preach and teach the word of God. They would sit there for two hours, spellbound, and when he would finish, they would say, Don't stop, would you do it more? Before the communists took over, he was pastor of one of the largest churches in Beijing. All Chinese. No American missionaries involved, never had been involved. And God used him and thousands like him just to spread the gospel through China. But then he got arrested. He wanted to write books, he couldn't write anything. He wanted to to read more scripture, he didn't have a Bible to read. He wanted to preach sermons to, to large crowds, there was nobody to preach to. He was interviewed before he died after he he was released. He said, I wanted to preach sermons and write books, but in my cell, I could not. It was just me and the Lord. He is all I had. It was the greatest experience of my life. I had nothing but him. The Western journalist who interviewed him said, what would you say to me? What would you say to me, a Western Christian, who's never been persecuted like that? You have grown. God has changed your life. He's done a work on you. What would you say to us, Westerners, who've never been persecuted like that? You know what he said? He said, Well, you're going to have to build yourself a cell. Do you understand? And the truth is, that cell exists. It's in your heart. When Jesus taught us to pray, he said, go in your room and shut the door. Shut yourself off, just you and God, you and him. How can you possibly have joy that's not tied to your circumstances? How can you possibly love people and there's nothing lovable about that person? How can you possibly keep seeking God when you know that if you keep seeking God, all it's going to get you is more trouble? You build a cell in your heart where it's just you and him.